So today we're talking again to Malcolm. How my hi Malcolm. Hi Jay. Uh, very nice to have you back. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Apex. Yeah. So where do we start the story with Apex? Well, I, I think Apex is the latest in a in a kind of long traditional long um, story of libraries that have been trying to tackle this problem of HTTP compliance, which we talked about last time. So. Um, for me, it started back in around 2009 when there was a, a friend of mine gave me a tip for, for this wonderful new library that had come out by Basho called Web Machine. And people might, your, your listeners might uh, know, as, um, might have seen a big flow chart which shows how to interpret HTTP and how to build a server that would, you know, you know it's a huge, great big kind of flow chart with different status codes at each of the terminals. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was a real kind of influence. And about the same time, um, Philip Meyer um, started working on a, a library called Closure Rest. And I was kind of trying to port Web Machine to uh, a to Closure library. I called mine Plugboard. And I discovered Billy's version, or Philip, Philip Meyer, Billy's kind of nickname, uh, and really fell in love with it. I mean, what, he had done much, much better job than I had and, and really got... Um, uh, kind of the, all these kind of state machine built in these uh, closure functions. And so I, I really kind of adopted it and fell in love with it and, and started to commit to it and, and work with him on, on it uh, until about 2012, uh, which we kind of renamed it to Liberator. And, you know, and, and um, about five years, or was it? No, quite a long time after, about five years after that, uh, was working on, a, on a, another project where we had this com- compendium of different libraries that we've kind of stitched together and really wanted to, uh, you know, one, one of the things that we did there was a Swagger interface. This is back in the Swagger version one days and mm-hmm. um, really wanted to create a, a library that, or, that would do the web that spit out these Swagger documents or Swagger, um, you know, these lovely documentation tools to right. document the API. So that's where it, it came from. And then kind of rolled forward six years to today, where Yard is about six years old now. Um, it, again, it was kind of looking at open API and revisiting that and thinking, well, how would you upgrade this to the latest version? And I'd kind of arrived at open API again through looking at JSON schema and how the JSON schema evolution and the open API evolution were converging. And that was really exciting because I, I was really, really impressed with Jason Schema and actually still am. I think it's a, it's probably the thing that we're all looking for in the Clojure community to, um, as our spec language to, because it's so wonderfully serializable and, uh, and has all this tooling around it. So yeah, arrived again with open API and thought, well, don't really want to break Yarda and all the people using Yarda. Not, not that it's massively popular, but there's quite a lot that's happened in the last six years. Uh, so I didn't want to break the compatibility, particularly with all of the, um, mm. you know, the importance of keeping, um, uh, you know, keeping things from not breaking. Right. Um, so when so sort can we say that Apex is like, you know, uh, the next evolution of the Liberator and Yada? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think Yada can be seen as a kind of evolution of Liberator because Liberator it, it was just really a different take. Um, but but certainly, it's in that tradition of libraries that try to be on the more conformant and compliant end uh, of the spectrum, uh, rather than you know many libraries are you know around pragmatism. You know, we've got to build web services and get them out and get you know get our projects done. Um, so, but this is a this is an approach where you're really trying to almost religiously follow the 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 RFCs, the specifications, and in fact, the, you know, the latest crop of RFCs came out in um, about 2014, about the same kind of period. Yada was born, where there was this a uh, real effort in the uh, IETF to create a new new set of specifications to describe HTTP in more, much more depth, because the original RFC was kind of uh, ambiguous in places. Uh, so this project had just come to fruition and all of these documents, RFC uh, 7230 through to 7235 had all been published and, you know, kind of, kind of an exciting phase. And so that was that was really the, the beginning of Yardo. And then, yes, of course, this is... This is the next step, and really trying to finish off what Yada, I think, failed to to really do, which was implement all of this stuff, 
really effortlessly. Uh, I think Yardo um, made some progress towards this, but I didn't think it was it was going to be something that could really uh, complete the complete the vision. Right. So if we would say, I don't know if you can call them components or parts, what are the apex important, I don't know, innovations that happen or how do you phrase that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, apex started off as this kind of, um, the idea that it would be a replacement to Yada. Now Yada was a big project and, uh, the things that it depended on, and it was bound to, uh, for example, Aleph and, and Manifold, but also some JSON libraries, and meant that I think in total it was 170 plus transitive dependencies in, in you know, just by bringing in Yada to your project. And that that's kind of slow when you're starting up a closure project and, and too, too bulky. It was, it was really a batteries included library. And I wanted to uh, start again with this rule that I was going to be very careful not to bring in dependencies and, unless they were absolutely necessary. So, yeah, because of that, things... Uh, the, the two innovations I think in Apex were the uh, parameter passing aspects of Swagger, where you have a query parameter which is a which is a everything that follows the question mark in the URL or the form bodies or or um, of a request, and you wanted to check that they conform to a particular spec. In this case. Open API uses JSON schema, so I was kind of interested in in that part of. Uh, Yada, um, Yada before used prismatic schema, which hasn't really kind of been, isn't in vogue anymore in the closure community. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that was a decision I kind of wanted to revisit. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, Open API is is a different specification. It's not not an RFC, and so it really, you know, the the specs don't really care how you, how you interpret query strings. But um, I, I felt that coming about it another from another direction. Which is instead of the other approach, where you generate the the swagger description from another data model, I thought it was important. Uh, I, you know, I, I began to um, discover that other people were doing things around what you could term swagger first, where they're coming up with a, a specification or a dec- document in JSON or YAML, uh, getting agreed between the teams, and then you would um, you would use that to to drive the um, the rest of the service. So I, I quite like that Swagger first model. And I kind of, that was the, you know, that was the thing that Apex was about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- so when you say open API and Swagger, these are the open API is evolution of Swagger. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I think it was renamed when it was version three. Um, so mm-hmm. they just changed it from Swagger to open API, but it's the same thing. Right. Yeah. So to just put a bit more words around it, it's like you have your endpoint and you, as you mentioned, you just create like this JSON or YAML file and you specify your endpoints, what will be your responses and what will you more or less expect. And in this way, when you say the swagger first, this is how the team agree how exactly the endpoint will talk to each other and then they go and build it. Yeah, exactly. Swagger is a, or the, the open API document is a tree. The, the first thing is the, as you say, the URL, the, the endpoints. And for each endpoint, you have a number of operations or, or methods. So mm-hmm. some, oper- some URLs have different methods. And then for each method, you have a number of status codes that were possible to be returned from that method. And then mm-hmm. for each status code, um, if those responses had bodies, it would say, well, for this status code, for each status code, there would be a description of the content types available. So it was this hierarchy. And at each stage, you can put in descriptions and examples which is something you can't generate so that was another reason why i felt that it's nicer to have a native document that is standardized by somebody and they have all this tooling or ecosystem and you start from the document first rather than generating the document because you can't generate obviously textual english descriptions and examples so it's Mm -hmm. probably better to go from the the document first Mm -hmm. Uh, another thing you mentioned is json schema Yes, so JSON schema was a was a very well, is is still in draft, but um, JSON schema is a um, an attempt to uh, create a kind of closure spec for JSON. That's kind of the easiest way of describing it. It's a JSON document itself, and it it um, allows you to say at any point in the JSON tree what are the valid properties at a given point, and 
and values and uh, which what the values are allowed to be, whether they're dates or patterns or URLs or whatever. And, and it has some kind of really interesting, um, powerful features like dependencies. So you can say if the value is foo, then there's going to be um, an extra structure in the tree that, that um, uh, if the value is bar, there could be another structure. So it's really, really flexible. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the only difference then to spec would be that there are strings versus the keywords as we're used to them, but I don't think this is any like a big deal, right? No, I mean, there are some differences, but um, it's more um, it's more the JSON schema is kind of supported by, or, you know, will eventually be supported by lots of other languages. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of, we, we talked about this last time with the web being you know, the web doesn't pick a, a language. It, it doesn't privilege a language. It says that anybody who can speak this protocol can right. can interoperate on the web. And I, I feel if you're going to pick something that is going to specify data, and data is something that we pass all the time between programs, then that specification mm -hmm. should be something that's consumable by any language. And therefore, it needs to be independent and agnostic of a language. And closure spec is great, but it's not agnostic. I mean, it, closure spec mm -hmm. works for closure programs and you know i'd love that you know it would be interesting to live in a world where every program was closure but you know that's never going to happen and uh it, it so i you know if you're going to specify um particularly data that you're going to accept at a network boundary let that specification language itself be data and let it be agnostic right so um you even created a library for json schema called jinx yeah, that, that well, that was a summer project, and that was really a kind of itch I wanted to scratch. I wanted to to work out in closure. I kind of wanted to tame JSON schema and learn it at the same time. So I uh, wanted to create a little open source library uh, to pick on a you know a common problem of validation. You know, how do I can I prove that this data structure is valid with respect to the schema and explain if it isn't why it isn't. And so mm -hmm. Jinx is a uh, yeah, it, it, it is a kind of a bunch of, it's a multi-method, I think, with a bunch of def methods in Clojure to uh, tackle each part of the uh, JSON schema specification, which is a beautiful specification to implement. I mean, it's a, it's so, I mean, it's in draft, but I mean, it's, people have been working on it for many, many years. And um, you see this in old specifications or ones that have had a lot of effort, how they, they kind of have this beautiful inner simplicity. You can see how much thought has gone into it. Um, so it was a really, yeah, it was really a good way of, it's always a good way of learning, uh, learning anything is, you can you sit and you write some code, but, but Jinx is available and Jinx is going to, you know, is part of Apex and it's used by Apex to validate uh, inbound parameters and query strings. Mm -hmm. um, so what else do we have in Apex? Oh, well, uh, yeah. So the next thing I... I wrote was to, the, the, I mean, in, in OpenAPI, there's some small mention of authentication. And one of the things mm -hmm. it mentions is the um, use of OpenID Connect, which is this kind of, you, you, you'll have seen it with these social logins where you kind of yeah. can log in with Facebook. And, and that's mm -hmm. um, standardized in a, uh, a specification, OpenID Connect. And there's this uh, interesting uh, it's a suite of specifications, and there's an interesting spec in that suite called OpenID Connect Discovery, which is a, a JSON document that explains uh, what all the keys, uh, the crypto, the, the endpoints, the you know where you get the tokens, and it describes it so that anybody can stand up an authorization server, and as long mm -hmm. as they they comply with the discovery spec, then they can you can use it without having to write custom code for each different authentication server really really cool so i wanted to implement that because i thought that that's just the very data oriented way of solving the problem so that you could switch out um you know i i, I did a my first uh, implementation was with key cloak but then could switch it out with aws cognito or with right. google and it or was zero. yeah it was yeah. really impressive how you you could just by pointing to just a different url you could make your program work just with different authentication providers so i thought that's definitely the way to go so i spent a lot of time implementing that because <clears throat> there's quite a lot that you have to do like you got to verify jwts and there's a whole lot of rules about um right. you know and how you actually distribute the keys and acquire the 
the, the keys it's, it's quite uh, complex so I wanted to create some ring middleware where I could bundle all of that and, and put that into uh, mm-hmm. apex as a as a kind of uh, module mm-hmm. and this module is called and um, this module is called OAuth 2 but OAuth, okay. you know it's not a separate um, so what happened with apex is the idea was that there can be lots and lots of different modules, and it wasn't going to be like Yada, it was going to be very modular. Um, but then as I began to write the next module, which was Reap, um, I began to, um, I'll, I'll come to what Reap does, and it, it, I began to see that actually it'd be better to, to make these fully formed closure libraries because in the case mm. of libraries like Reap, they're actually going to be very useful, not just for uh, Apex, but arguably useful for, you know, other projects so we have in Juxta and, and indeed um, other people who, who want to make use of it. So I thought, well, you know, the closure thing is to have small mem- small uh, little libraries that do one thing well. So Reap got spun out, um, as did a couple of other libraries. Mm-hmm. So I should explain what Reap does. So one of the things that you, yeah. you, one of the things I've had, you know, you eventually have to do if you're writing a uh, anything on the internet is that you have to parse uh, textual strings in http that's request headers or you know response headers and you have to parse them and you have to construct them uh, so for example take uh, i think reap readme starts with an example of parsing the accept header and the accept header is really just a comma separated list of media types so you'd be tempted to just like use a closure string library split on comma and you know take the individual mm-hmm. sections and and so on and but only when you come to parse um just even something like a, a media type in an accept header there's just so many edge cases you have the mm-hmm. the type and the subtype and then potentially some parameters and then a q value and then after that some accept extensions and you know to do it properly and, and to do it securely uh is really tough when you're trying to think of all the other concerns. You might be writing some ring middleware and suddenly you've got to parse this header. So I wanted to, this is a kind of complicating area of Yarda. And so I wanted to just break this up into a different problem and just spend some time working on parsing. I'd already got some parsing logic in Yarda. It's quite a lot of parsing logic in Jinx. It's all kind of copy and pasted. And so I wanted to formalize it in a library that would um, parse these strings but in a really high performance way because mm-hmm. of course you know everything that you do in terms of every cycle you waste when you're parsing an accept header or, or, or any other header is is potentially gonna um be, be uh you know a cost on potentially any web request and it's going to really destroy your benchmarks and destroy your performance if you don't do it in a performant way and in there, sorry, I didn't think, catch the name of the library. It yeah, was it's Reap, R-E-A-P. So it starts, yeah, R-E for regular expression. And Reap is kind of English word that means um, it's a sort of uh, what you would do if you were going to harvest some wheat. You you, you mm-hmm. would reap it. It's the, so if you think of the Green Reaper, that was the kind of implement that mm-hmm. you would use for harvesting corn. So it's, it's really pulling interpretation and information out of strings. Right. Um, so this is parsing the headers. What would be the next part? Would that be networking or? Right. So, so yeah. So the, the next thing I, I kind of worked on was um, the, yeah, let's talk to, to talk about Vertex then. Um, because mm-hmm. the one of the questions I had um, when I was working on Yada was what would happen if the, so Yada is a library that is dependent on Aleph. And, mm-hmm. and that was, kind of on purpose. And Aleph has a middleware, which isn't kind of strictly ring compliant. Aleph brings a lot of um, the ability to use deferred values, promises and futures. And so you can't just bring any ring middleware and make it Aleph compliant, although you you can make some adapter. Um, But Aleph is kind of a a good route to get to Netty and Netty is a really high performance web stack. So, you know, uh, some libraries like Pedestal is much uh, easier to uh, kind of work in other J2E web servers and things like Jetty. Um, whereas I kind of thought, well, that, yeah, it would be nice to have different web servers that Yada could be ported to. But anyway, that was one of the concerns that maybe one day 
uh, like with Zach and Alexi, then, you know, there's not too many people maintaining Aleph and Manifold. And really, if they stop maintaining it, that's kind of a risk. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a good friend in, in London who's who kind of gave me a tip that, you know, in the, the Java and Kotlin communities, um, they were really excited about this thing, Vertex, which was a sort of Node.js for the Java platform. So Node.js is a kind of asynchronous stack Right. server-side javascript and uh they had they, they kind of created a, a vertex but uh, i think it's uh vertex.io um and this is it's similarly like like aleph it's built on netty but uh it's got a vast number of developers huge number of different languages it supports closure is not one of them but you know you can access it very easily through closures wonderful java interop but it works really, really well. It's so feature-rich, and it's it's a, a really lovely, fluent Java API, um, and it's a, a bag of riches. There's so many things, even things I, I had to spend a lot of time working on on Yada, uh, which was multi-part supporting um, the ability to put multiple, you know, send forms. If you send a form on the web with images or videos, and you know, chances are you're going to be using multi-part, which is sending all the fields as kind of binary blobs um, mm-hmm. separated by these boundary strings. Now, parsing that in an asynchronous fashion, when you you know you might have only got half a boundary string and you're waiting for the second half asynchronous, is really really tough. Uh, and in Vertex, that's just done. That's just done by. Um, as part of the library. So there's just so much in Vertex I wanted to leverage. So, you know, the only problem was that Vertex doesn't have a closure adapter, a ring adapter for it. And then, you know, it was keen to to build one and have a play around with it. So I did. And uh, the, the results are in a library I did call Flux. Uh, but then when I started investigating um, reactive streams a bit more, I, I realized there's actually a, a, a project reactor and in the you know in the spring world and there's a part as a project within that uh project called flux and i thought well that's just a a bit close so i ended up naming naming the um vertex adapter vexed v-e-x-t which is the past tense of to vex when Mm -hmm. something is very vexing uh which is which is a good description of the state of mind i was in Mm -hmm. and so yeah yeah that that it was the um, kind of part of the you know the project that was around trying to you know what what Aleph brought to Yada was the ability to do non-blocking I/O with back pressure and this is uh, something that Zach's done some really great talks on but you know if you allow somebody to send a request which is uh, you know into your web server without any uh, kind of unbounded that just keeps on ongoing um somebody can bring down you know if you're storing that in in ram somebody can blow your memory just by sending a post request with just uh, an unbounded amount of bytes and as fast mm-hmm. as as fast as your network so the 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 thing that you do to avoid that is to use back pressure and that is where you you kind of block and you say like i'm not ready yet for and you know mm-hmm. um, so you signal to your your producer uh, and you say, right, can you stop sending me stuff? It's just like flow control in TCP IP. Um, and so without that pressure, um, you know, you, you have big problems. So I wanted to, wanted to kind of find what is the non-blocking back pressure thing that I can bring into this um, Apex suite of libraries. And it turned out Vertex is a, sort of some nice solutions for that. Um, and one is a... Um, there's a kind of community of people, I think, from uh, Kazar and um, I only have to look them up. I think it's, you know, the, the reactivestreams.org community. Mm-hmm. They've been working on this for a long time um, in parallel to what Zach was doing in Manifold. And they you know, come up with some really nice Java interfaces and implementations around flow control. Um, mm-hmm. And that's those interfaces have made it into JDK 9. So as Java util concurrent flow. So I wanted to, to utilize all this kind of technology and, and there's this um, project called RxJava2, which is an implementation of these interfaces. The interfaces are called reactive streams. So it's kind of confusing. There's all these kind of different projects and names flying around, but RxJava2 is this um, kind of awesome way of doing 
kind of it's a, a huge toolbox of asynchronous goodies where you can kind of throttle things and you know it buffer things up and and merge streams together and cross them and cut them and splice them and all kinds of mm. all kinds of different um so that was a really nice li- library and it's integrated uh there's a there's this kind of um support within vertex to bring in our uh, rx java so it's kind of complicated at the, the the low level but what i wanted to do is just wrap all that stuff in a single library called uh, vexed which would be a kind of optional thing within apex that you could bring in if you wanted all the asynchronous stuff yeah so let me ask you also this uh what is spin and pick responsible for yeah okay so let's start with pick because one of the challenges in in yada was one of the things that liberator and yada both tried to do was content negotiation now content mm-hmm. negotiation in http is where the the client comes in with a request and says this is my capabilities. This is what I'm able to right. display. And the server will say, well, this is this is my capabilities. This is what I'm able to provide. And there's some negotiation process that goes on where the, um, the right representation that can be viewed by the client is selected. Now, mm-hmm. there's a, um, there are at least four different kind of access uh, when dealing with content. There's a, there's the, um, MIME type, is this a JSON document or Eden document or is it CSV or HTML? You know, that's the MIME type. There's also the char set, which is which character encodings, you know, is it ASCII, is it UTF-16 or, you know. Uh, then there is the the language. Is this document in English or French or Spanish or, you know, what do you have and what can I read? Mm-hmm. And, you know, finally there's an encoding, which is uh, have you got this gzipped or, you know, and they're all very subtly different. In the case of encoding, you can have... Uh, something where the client says, I know how to do flate and I know GZIP and they're two separate algorithms. And on the server, you can have a document that's in, um, is actually compressed with deflate and then further compressed with GZIP. GZIP. So it's a, co- a composed uh, kind of compression. And the client has to ha- have knowledge of how to decompress in each of the algorithms <laughs> in order to show it. So there's um, you know, with languages, there's a whole uh, area of uh, language tags and what a language, how you interpret them, and um, it, I mean, it goes into you know vast amounts of complexity. So the the HTTP specification refers to um, kind of these other RFCs, and to do content negotiation, you have to kind of do a different algorithm for MIME types from to languages and do encodings because they're all subtly different. Uh, and then even if you follow the rules, uh, there are, inter- you know, there are kind of uh, different decisions that are, you know, are not specified. So I went to the Apache server because the Apache server has a really good content negotiation that's well established and they kind of document it and there's a whole bunch of steps and, you know, so, um, mm-hmm. and that's combined with the problem that uh, a lot of the times that the client will say, well, I prefer English over Spanish, but if you've got Spanish, that will do, or you can have these, this thing called Q values, quality values. So the whole problem of the, the whole area of content negotiation was, was kind of written in a, and there's a namespace in Liberator, I think Conag, and there was, um, and Yada did the same thing. Yada kind of did mostly media types and char sets, but didn't really do encodings and languages to any, any degree. And then there's a library called Montaja or Mataya in, in uh, the Matosin have produced, which is a separate library for content negotiation. Um, it doesn't do everything. It doesn't do languages and doesn't do encodings. And there are things in spec, for example, wildcards where you can say, uh, I'll have, uh, I can read any text, text star. And, you know, there, there are kind of all kinds of um, rules in the uh, I think RFC 7231 about, uh, handling all this stuff and then there's uh there's different levels of um yeah that you know it, it just gets really complex so wanted to mm. break that out all out into a separate library um, and that's what pick is pick is a word that means you know pick you know you you pick something you make a choice so this is a uh, this is definitely a good case for a separate library and i didn't really again want to make that an apex module because i thought well you know if i can kind of work on content negotiation. And in fact, 
you know, Dominic Monroe is kind of keen to backport Pick into Yarda. So he's done some work to make uh, Yarda work with Pick so that the content negotiation algorithm in Yarda can be replaced. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, there's whole efforts to potentially bring Yarda up to date and uh, with these kind of new libraries. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's Pick. Okay. And Spin? Uh, we, did we talk about yes, this? Yes, now Spin Sorry. is, you know, finally we get to, we, you know, we've got some content negotiation. We've got the ability to handle, you know, non-blocking uh, with back, back pressure IO. We've got mm-hmm. the ability to look at uh, parameters, query strings, form parameters, body, uh, so on, um, and parse those and validate those uh, and specify those. So that's Apex and Jinx, uh, well, Open API and Jinx. Um, so what is the thing that actually holds it all together. What is the, and if you read all the kind of RFCs, the, um, whether it's, yeah, that, so there's a number of things that you, in order to be compliant with HTTP, there's a kind of six areas of things that you kind of really have to do. The, the first is sort of that stuff in web machine where you have to uh, figure out, given a method, that you know you have different methods and they all have different semantics and you've got to do different things you've got to return the correct headers different status codes depending on the method and so that all of that stuff all the, those rules are incorporated in RFC seven two three one and then there's there's a another aspect which is caching because caching is supremely important on the web and 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 possibly important in our APIs anytime mm-hmm. we can resolve a query in a cache is work that we're not doing. It's CPU cycles that we're not expending and heat that we're not producing. Um, and so I think there's a kind of environmental argument for doing, you know, for avoiding doing, you know, work. So caches are, uh, you know, supremely important. And for us to kind of exploit caches, not just for our files and content and images, but to exploit them in terms of maybe, you know, the daily report um, and the, you know, last month's sales report and so on. Why can't those things be cached? So those are described in 7234. Um, but in order to do caching properly, you have to, um, when a cache uh, content becomes stale, a cache will call back to the server, the origin server, and say, you know, give me the fresh version of this. And to do that, it will do a conditional request. You, you might have seen your browser does these conditional requests where they say, well, if the date is more than this, then well, let me have the new content. Otherwise, I've already got it. And, and um, a server can respond with a, you know, a 304 to say, no, you've already got the latest version, don't worry. So that is all specified in with you know these these date validators. And if you've seen entity, entity tags, that's another type of validator. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond that, you also have you know, content negotiation, the, the whole kind of orchestration of that negotiation. Uh, you have ranges where you might be downloading a part a partial bit of the file, or you might have stopped downloading a report and you want the second half of the report. So HTTP supports that. And then finally, all the security headers that is, is absolutely required today in today's web and authentication, as we, we talked about, and uh, you know, and maybe authorization too. So all of those things, how do you, how do you kind of, um, with with um, all of those things, there's, there's a kind of um, theme that runs through all of those concerns. And that is what the spec calls the resource interface or the HTTP interface. There's this kind of implied notion that you have an interface between this logical resource thing and the request that's coming in. And this is my kind of criticism of the way that the web dynamic content has evolved through CGI and WebRack and, and you know, Ring is the kind of lay, in the closure version of that whole tradition of taking a single request and then producing a response. Um, mm-hmm. For example, you know, if you, if you're, you, you're using pedestal and the interceptor model is all, all about processing a, a request in, in different ways and coming up with a response. So this right. kind of, this functional approach is, the request comes in, the response is, it, it, it is so common to almost every web framework, but it's wrong because the, the, the point of this interface is that you have this mediation or conversation between a request and the resource. The resu- so when a request says, Are you, when was the last time you were modified? Well, the resource has to say, well, last Tuesday. There has to be some actor 
is going to represent the resource in this conversation. And and this actor is missing from, from many web frameworks. Now, in Yada, kind of decided that, that that resource was really a data artifact. It was a, it was a, a map in Yada. So you have this resource map. Um, but kind of the problem with that approach was that maps are great for data. They're not so great if most of the values of that data are functions because you can't serialize very easily. And mm-hmm. so then what's the point in having data? So I've kind of in in the kind of new approach I'm taking is it is really just a set of closure protocols. And so there's this protocol at the front which says, okay, I've got this URL. What is the resource? Because um, there's no routing in any of this. This is just a kind of conversation between a client that says, I've got this URL, give me the resource. So the the the, the resource locator is a protocol uh, and that can be fulfilled by Reated or Biddy or um, in, in some systems that um, I've been working on that's fulfilled by the database itself. So we, we can put resources into database like Crux and index them on, you know, put an attribute, which is, this is the URL that I live at. And then the, the routing is really a database lookup saying, I've got this URL, give me the, the you know, in Crux's case, the entity or the, or the record or the row that mm-hmm. that it represents this resource. Um, so, so this collection of interfaces, this conversation, uh, is really a kind of attempt to um, reduce the complexity and work of the the developer of the endpoint. So we've we've got the same kind of a, a good analogy is the analogy of the operating system. If you're trying to write, if you if you're writing a program and you have to write to a disk file and you have to synchronize it and you know that that gets really hard really quickly. So we have a a way of handling that complexity. And an operating system, or kernel, uh, we have this idea of kernel space and user space. The kernel space does all the kind of low-level I.O. and talks to user space. Our programs live in user space, and there's this conversation between the kernel and and our programs, our applications. And so it's the same idea that's going on here, that spin is a kernel for web orchestration, that spin will talk at the network layer and decide the status codes, the headers, the, um, you know, the, the call, the content negotiation, when it should be called. Um, and you interact with that conversation by satisfying a number of closure protocols. You choose which protocols you, you want to satisfy. So if you want content negotiation, there are protocols for that. If you want to implement the put method, there's, a protocol for each of the HTTP methods and, and so on. So that's the that's the metaphor that you you instead of coding every single endpoint and you know creating a a, a stack of ring and a ring middleware, what you're doing is is you're delegating that all to a separate kernel. And what you're then involved in doing is just specifying the security policies and the interactions and the actual you know the application code without going down into the, the network stack. You know, I believe we're coding far too low down in the kind of OSI network layer. We, we're coding much too low. We should be um, much, much higher level, shouldn't be writing data-oriented programs and not network-oriented programs. So SPIN is an attempt to kind of prop up that and, and um, get us to program at more of a, a, a level of data abstraction. Mm-hmm. Um. Can we do an example? Because I'm I'm not sure if I'm like following everything correctly. But so currently, if I have my let's say JSON endpoint, mm. and I'm calling my JSON endpoint, and I'm getting some kind of let's say user information, mm. so I will do a rec- I will send a ring request to my server, mm. uh, and then I would say my URI is you know I don't know users, and then the slash user ID, yeah. and this would be a get. And uh, there will be some headers, maybe some authentication and authorization. Uh, and then I would get my response map back uh, with the user information. So this would dig out, this will go through the ring and then through my handler and then talk to the database and go all the way up back again. Yeah. Um, so how would that be accomplished with spin? So the request would come in. And the request request would be for a URL, 
So the first mm-hmm. step would be, I guess you could call it routing, um, mm-hmm. but you, all you're doing is coming up with some representation of that resource or some, some it could be a database record, it could be a map, um, and you mm-hmm. return that. Then the uh, then there might be uh, a get method. So because the request has a get method, it then says, do you support get? And the server says, yeah, I support get. And it said, oh, okay. Um, in that case, it looks like we're all good. It's a 200. So set this status to 200. And there's a reason for doing kind of it in this order because you want to do it in the same order than the open, that the open API people do it in. But that's a, uh, that's a footnote. So you've got a get request. You decided it's 200. And then you go to the server and says, okay, I'm looking for some HTML. Do you have some HTML? And there's then a content negotiation that goes on, which might involve the PIC library, uh, but doesn't have to. And the server says, ah, well, I, I've only got JSON, um, and I'm afraid that that means it's a 406. Okay. The, 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 so Spin says, okay, it's a 406, is it now? Okay, that's an error. I have to go back to you and say, well, I need to report a 406, which is... Um, uh, is, this is a not acceptable request. There's nothing that we have that is going to satisfy the client. Uh, this is an error. What error? What can you give me for a 406 error? Ah, I, I've got some plain text. I can serialize an exception in plain text. I said, okay, let me just check that the client re- can read plain text. Ah, good. Yes, we've got. We've negotiated the error content, and so the, that's that's great. So then the server is asked, can you generate this error in plain text for me? And then content type response header is added in. And then the, the client shows an error saying 406 and maybe a stack trace. So that, that's the kind of the difference that there's that at each stage, there's this kind of conversation going on. Uh, and no stage is the, the application saying, I'm going to have to you know set, set the content type header, or I'm going to have to just spit out JSON anyway. I mean, it's, it, it's um, which you can do that, but this is really about trying to be a, the most you know, conformant citizen on the web and, and to give application developers the ability to write, I guess, web handlers, but no, in, safe in the knowledge that all of the kind of other low-level bits of what you should do in HTTP are done automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess that that's the same story. I mean, you, that's the sad path. In the happy path case, you might have... Um, yeah, you might have some sort of negotiation of media type coming in where there's some multi-part request body coming coming in and you might say, yep, that's, in fact, that's acceptable. Thank you very much. Or you may have a request that comes in subsequently that says, can you give me that, that same JSON response? Um, but uh, don't bother if, if it's going to be the same as all the ones that you've, you know, and here's an e-tag I'm going to give you to say, look, if it's going to be the same e-tag, I'm just, I don't want to, see this again because i've already got a copy in my cache and then the server says yeah actually you know the you've asked me to generate an e-tag for this content here it is and it is the same or you might say well actually i'm not interested in the content i only want to look at the e-tag and i'm going to send a head request and then of course that that is then um, that that spawns a separate conversation so there's there's different conversations depending on the method um, so all of this is a you know tremendous amount of work for any developer to do in a kind of on an ad hoc pragmatic basis so um you know as i as i mentioned last time <laughs> you know people don't bother developers won't bother uh, implementing these kind of parts of the of, of the spec and and that's fine i mean there's no there's no uh, law against uh, not complying with these specs but i you know i grew up in a in a world in a kind of during the you know the the Unix wars of the nineties, where mm. in TCP/IP stacks were just coming out, you know where you you had different TCP/IP stacks. In there was this thing of Windows three point one and Windows for work groups, and two machines wouldn't talk to each other if they didn't have the same stack from the same vendor. I mean, there were all these interoperability issues because vendors weren't implementing even you know the TCP/IP RFCs properly, or um, latterly in Corba where, you know, corporate orbs were implementing the same set of specifications from an organization called the OMG. Um, and yet none of these vendor orbs would talk to each other or work together in any kind of, at any scale, because 
just they weren't interoperable. Uh, interoperable. Mm. And so I learned fairly early on the, the value and the benefit of standards and specifications and implementing those things to the letter. Um, and so that's kind of really influenced me and informed me. And I, you know, I, I might have a strong bias um, and I'm, I'm somewhat kind of monastic in my adherence to the holy text of the internet. I'm, I'm not really kind of interested in making decisions about what people actually want or use. I, I'm kind of more interested in following things to the letter, which is, is somewhat, you know, a development style that is, uh, is kind of liberating. Mm, okay. Um, so if I want to take a, uh, if I want to take a spin for a spin, Good pun. Um, I appreciate it. <laughs> How would I go about that? Uh, well, there is soon. To, actually, yes, it is public. There is a um, project that I'm working on called Site S I T E, um, which is trying to bring. Because of course you need examples. How to bring all this kind of stuff together? So I'm using Site as the example website, um, and uh, which I may well. Uh, have a version of site within edge so that people are using the juxta edge kind of um, bootstrap project can can utilize but site is a standalone project and it, it has a depths.eden and it points to all these libraries and it has some examples um, one of the things in spin is this resource interface as a set of protocols so you need to implement these protocols or have an implementation which exhibits all of your your policies and and your uh, adapts the your implementation to your back end, whether that's a database or, or what have you. So there will be an example of this, uh, of a uh, of an implementation which, um, in the in the context of site, goes off to Crux, which is sort of brings in Crux, uh, our uh, graph database, because kind of wanted to show the whole ensemble what have an end to end. But you can certainly take site and you can. Uh, uh, you, you could point it at a different um, database or, or a different backend or a file system or, or, or whatever you like. In fact, I mean, the, the file system um, use case is interesting. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a, all a matter of just implementing a set of protocols and you don't have to implement them all. You can just be, be quite picky about what HTTP capabilities you want to support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does this hold true the same for Apex or? Well, yes. I mean, so Apex is going, well, it was the kind of grand project name. Apex in the future will just kind of get um, to be the open API bit of this. So there'll be implementations of spin protocols that will map onto open API documents. My hope is that um, you'll be able to take an open API document, you'll be able to upload it to a Crux server as an entity, and that Crux will start uh, with with some mapping uh, hints to say, well, if I come in and get to do a get on this URL, that will map onto a Crux query, and you can say, well, I want this in JSON or you know, you'll be or, or GraphQL or, or whatever, and there'll be um, so just by uploading, just by putting a YAML de- or JSON de- uh, description of your API. Then your then Crux will implement the API for you, and there's some precedents of this in the Open API ecosystem. I think they're called mock servers, where you can mock out a, a server. There's a bit a bit more than that. This will be if your application is something that can be written in in terms of all the capabilities of Crux, you'll be able to pretty much write your implement write a you know a, a working implementation of your idea just by writing the Open API document and putting in the Crux queries at the various parts of that document, uh, putting in some JSON schemas, and then you're kind of there. So it's a kind of low code, no code approach to things, you know, which is you know, endpoints and APIs that we're writing all the time. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure we will have to do uh, another episode on Crux itself, but I'm sure that will come. Yeah, that might maybe another season because it's, uh, yeah, you should have a database season maybe. And There is one, there is one planned, so it's oh, coming. Very good. Very good. Yeah, definitely. Um, is there anything else regarding Apex Spin that we should talk about? Um, well, only that it's it's still a work in progress. I mean, there's some things that are still missing. The uh, the bits about 
the range queries and partial responses is is still being found out. Um, I'm really working at the moment on getting conditional requests uh, and caching uh, working. That's kind of important to me. Um, and then really bringing it all together in one easy to use um, project or, or download or, or documentation. So things are a little bit still labs quality and still in alpha and still evolving. And I, mm-hmm. I don't expect that will change for a good, uh, at least six months. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot yet to do, but there's, there's been a lot of progress made. I mean, it's a, it's a big project, but one that, you know, I don't think the, the web is going anywhere in the next few years. It's going to be more or less the same. So, right. you know, I don't think there's, I don't want to rush this and I, I really want to get the, um, the, the protocols just right. And that's kind of requires a little bit of ebb and flow with working on libraries and then using them and then getting feedback and going back and working on the libraries. So who knows? But I think most of the skeleton is kind of there now. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have any other ideas for libraries, um, unless, of course, it's uh, uh, there is some work I'm doing in GraphQL on Crux, which might be another library called Grab. Um, so and that, and going into the whole area of schema and being able to put JSON schema within the Crux database and well, you know, our, our um, I guess our, our kind of Crux version of schema, and so there's a, there's this whole area of um, code graphs as well, which is around. Um, computation of uh, computation graphs um, so so yeah that it, it is but this this portion which is really the network layer is kind of really quite close to having something that can be used but it's going to be a while and I hope hope you know listeners are you know forgiving that it is it's a work in progress and it's not going to be ready for quite a while yet but maybe you know keep tabs on it and send me you know, feel free to send me an email, emails with feedback and raise issues and, and so on. But certainly some of the um, libraries like Reap and Pick uh, are good to use right now. Um, mm-hmm. So um, perhaps there is some value in using those and getting getting feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will try to do my best to put uh, all the links into the show notes so everybody can check out those uh, for an easier access. And yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, I guess we can slowly wrap up. Yes. Yeah. Um, thanks. So, yeah. Thanks All very right. much, so, Jay. It was, it was, it yeah. was really, um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity for uh, that, you know, brain dump, I guess, and, and a really uh, kind absolutely. of point about where, where things are. Absolutely. Anytime. It's a pleasure to have you on and just talk about all this stuff and also seeing how, uh, that, uh, well, you used the expression, what is it, down to the letter? Yeah. Or what yeah. down to the letter you are. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. It's also very inspiring, actually. So um, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it by rating on the platform you're listening to, sharing with others, and supporting it directly by buying some video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure. You can check out the courses at jacekshe.com. That is J-A-C-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thanks.